Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on April 24th of 2010, under the headline, Camp Adair, Oregon's Second Largest City, Was Built in Six Months. Here we go. In 1942, Oregon's second largest city sprang into being. In six months, a big patch of the mid Willamette Valley became a massive army training camp, Camp Adair. Six years after that, Camp Adair was the state's biggest salvage operation, and today it's the state's biggest ghost town. Here's the story, the short version anyway. In about 1940, people in Washington, D.C. pretty much knew war was coming, and they started looking around for a 65,000-acre piece of ground, mostly nice and flat, but with some hilly wooded terrain on it, a place that would seem a little bit like a piece of Germany, where they expected to be doing the fighting. By 1941, it was down to two sites, one near Eugene and one just north of Corvallis. Business leaders in Corvallis and Monmouth, with an eye on the retail trade, actually visited Washington to lobby for the more northerly site. To the dismay of about 750 people living in the area around and in the tiny town of Wells, who were subsequently displaced by the base, they were successful. Many had to leave crops in the ground and weren't compensated for them, although the government did pay for their land. But there were few complaints. After all, there was a war on. A few weeks later, Wells was raised and the area was, as they like to say today, shovel-ready. Then the crews moved in, four big construction companies that during peacetime were fierce regional competitors. During the construction season of 1942, mid-spring to late fall, they built about 1,800 buildings. According to historian John H. Baker, these included, quote, a field house with three full-size basketball courts, a bakery which had the capacity to produce 45,000 loaves of bread every day, a wastewater treatment plant, a freshwater treatment plant, a heating plant, 500 barracks, 11 chapels, five movie theaters, 13 post exchanges, two service clubs, a hospital, a bank, post office, phone exchange, warehouses, coal yards, headquarters building, a gas house, firing ranges, a model German village, electrical sub substation and service, airfield, day and orderly rooms, rail yards, and the major improvements of Highway 99W. To do this, 8,000 people worked all summer long. At their peak, they were finishing a building every 32 minutes. Electricians learned to wear stilts to save the time it usually took to move a ladder around. The hospital, Baker said, broke a national record for construction speed, and it was all done on time and under budget. By mid-September, the instant city was ready to welcome its 40,000 inhabitants. This at a time when Salem had just 31,000 residents and Eugene about 20. Portland at 305,000 was the runaway leader in population. Units trained at Adair for service in the war included the 91st Infantry Powder River Division, the 70th Infantry Trailblazers Division, the 104th Infantry Timberwolf Division, and the 96th Infantry Deadeye Division. The camp was decommissioned after the war, although little bits of it lingered on into the 60s, including an array of anti-aircraft missiles installed in 1959. 
Buildings were dismantled in panels and trucked away or floated across the Willamette River to be used to build new homes. Hundreds of these, characterized by sash windows of uniform size and two-inch thick exterior walls, still shelter families all over the Mid-Valley, although many have been upgraded to give them better insulation. Today, the northeastern corner of Camp Adair is a wildlife refuge, the E.E. E. Wilson. It's been restored to the seasonal wetland that it once was, so mosquitoes are not unknown there, although thanks to the plentiful bug-eating wildlife, not as common as you might expect. The long, straight, broad stretches of abandoned blacktop make for a pleasant bicycling spot, when the plentiful ruins and foundation walls are great for geocaching. It's an especially rewarding place to visit with a copy of Baker's book to use as a ghost town guide. By Baker's book, I mean John H. Baker's book, Camp Adair, which is pretty much the definitive source of historical information about Camp Adair. Nearby, the city of Adair Village, incorporated in the 1970s on a corner of the old site, still has several of the old buildings, including the camp's old fire station, which is now a restaurant. That's the story. I'd like to share a personal note before I finish. I actually live in a house that was built in the early 1950s out of salvaged material from Camp Adair. Before we moved in, I actually gutted the old house and retrofitted it with stud walls. The construction technique for the Camp Adair buildings was fascinating. Each panel seems to have been built by laying out tongue-and-groove one-by-four planks on a flat surface, probably a concrete floor, then laying an X-shaped pattern of bracing one-by-fours on top of that and nailing it all together with ribbon nails. Then 3 8 inch sheetrock, Kaiser brand, is attached to that and voila! Wallboard, studboard, sheathing, and siding, all in one neat little two-inch thick package. Nail them together at the edges, and there you go. Of course, the insulation value was very low, and the walls, frankly, looked weird. The walls also carry the load of the roof all by themselves, a system that I've heard called structural sheathing. And in our case, the weight of the whole house was transferred to the mud sill on the foundation by nothing more than a row of nails. The floor wasn't a structural part of the house, either. In fact, I'd ripped the whole thing out, including beams and girders, and for a little while our house was nothing but a 60-year-old shell nailed to the mud-silled foundation wall with a dirt floor. It wasn't pretty, but it worked, and it's a lot nicer now that I've fitted stud walls up behind the shell and insulated everything. Key sources in this story included works by John H. Baker, the Benton County Historical Museum, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife Visitor's Guide, and cityofadarevillage.org. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye.